You're listening to episode 3 of the Service Design Podcast. I'm David Morgan, Service Designer at Night Moves, and together with my colleague Stina von Hof, and in collaboration with the Service Design Network, we have conversations about service design with practitioners from around the globe. In this episode, we'll be talking to Megan Miller and Eric Flowers, who are behind the community Practical Service Design. Megan is a senior service designer at Stanford University, and Eric is principal customer experience designer at Intuit. Find out why they've started this thriving community. Hi, Eric. Hi, Megan. Nice to meet you. Uh, how are you guys doing? Hi, I'm good. Great. Thanks for having us. So um, we got to know you guys because we also become a, a member of the practical service design community. How did you guys get to, to work together and how did you start this platform? That's all Megan's, that's all <laughs> Megan's brain child, so I'll let her explain how it started. <laughs> sure. So Eric and I met at the Service Experience Conference in San Francisco um, two years ago, and we started collaborating and connecting on things, um, presenting at conferences together, uh, creating resources. And a year ago, we kind of had this crazy idea, which was, what if we launched this experimental Slack community and you know, what would happen? Like, how would it go if we just put this out here in the community. And so a year ago at the Service Experience Conference in San Francisco, we announced the launch of the Practical Service Design community. And we were just shocked at how rapidly the community has grown. Within the first month, I think we had about 200 people in there. And now we have over 1,500 people uh, joining the community. So I think we wanted to kind of run this grand experiment to see if if a gathering place virtually would be of interest to the community. And it really seems like there's a lot of need out there to, to have that connection uh, you know, across mm-hmm. the globe as we're all trying to ad- advance service design as a field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly, clearly it is if there's so many uh, people joining. You know, we find ourselves uh, very happily joining the community too. And uh, yeah, it's indeed, you, you don't have that many service designers around you. <laughs> and uh, we find it great to be able to reach out with questions uh, like a particular target audience that somebody uh, has never worked with before to see if there's any experience with that. Um, what do you think is, is the greatest value that's created through this uh, online community? Well, I think... For me, as I have been evolving my own practice and needing resources as I go, uh, having that community to lean on when I have a question or need some help thinking about something. So to me, it's, it's the value in sharing practice. And not everyone takes advantage of that in the community, but to me, that's the greatest value that we can give each other is really supporting each other through developing our practice. Yeah, the biggest benefit to me has been the exposure to new ideas and people working in different contexts and with different levels of experience who think of things and have heard things or say things or have a perspective that I never would have come up with without the community and kind of the worldwide 
nature of it. And the ideas you hear, they seem obvious and simple after you hear them, but it's stuff I never would have come up with on my own. And then some awesome person in the Slack brings it up and you start talking about it. And it's like, oh, wow, I just, I just learned something. I was exposed to something that in my normal day-to-day life and, you know, the place I go for work during the day and when I come home at night, I never ever would have heard this or been exposed to this. And now I'm getting new stuff in theories and concepts every single day. And it's amazing. Yeah. It seems like the, the Slack channel was uh, really successful, that people online are communicating a lot. Do you have any other plans with the practical service design community? Something offline or maybe mm-hmm. some uh, extra um, things that you want to do online? Yeah, we have uh, an upcoming webinar uh, that we're scheduling. We're trying to think about how to pull together topics of interest from the community and get people speaking about them. So, you know, pulling, drawing on the expertise in the community to feature different topics. A bunch of folks in the community are working on some community research, actually, to understand more what the community is interested in receiving out of the community and how we can better support people. So we're kind of entering a new phase where we're trying to be a little more thoughtful now that our first year of an experiment is over, (laughs) be a little more thoughtful Mm -hmm. of how we're growing the community and maturing it and creating venues for people. What would be your uh, ultimate dream? Where would the (laughs) channel go, uh, (laughs) go towards? Ultimately, I really want it to be that place for sharing practice. And I I would like to particularly make it a safe space for people new to the field to get exposure and feel like they can connect and contribute. I think right now we're seeing some barriers to entry for those who are new to service design to feel like they have something to add or feel like, you know, a lot of them join and then don't participate because they feel intimidated And what I really want to see is that this community can really support the next generation of service designers. Mm -hmm. Great. I'd also like to hear a bit about your other work because uh, practical service design is only one thing (laughs) that you guys do. Eric, you you are service designer at Inuit. Could you tell us a little bit about what you do there? Yeah, so I originally started at Intuit working as one of the first designers and the first service designer focused on the customer support experience and how we deliver customer service and kind of that critical support when people have problems and call in or look for stuff um, online, trying to get help with the product. And it was something that had never really been designed intentionally. And it had no choreography between all the different touch points and channels um, of how we support these paying customers who need help. And since it was never tied together and designed to be one whole big support ecosystem, everything was just kind of all over the place. And there was no singular architect or designer or person who held it all in their minds about here's how we are going to deliver support to people. And so when I came on, it was my job to kind of start to tie it all together and look at the ways um, that we're offering support presently and then kind of revolutionize it and say, look, we're not capable of delivering what we want with everything spread out between all these different teams all these different siloed organizations. How can we create a customer support ecosystem that has different channels, different contexts, different devices, people going from the phone to chat to email to the web to in-product help? It happens in so many different ways and areas. It had to be looked at as one big service experience and how we provide support to people and how we're going to perform that duty. And so my time, most of my time there has been around looking at how to improve 
that kind of support ecosystem. And then at the same time, looking at the top reasons that people need support in the first place and addressing those um, with the service design mindset, with the end-to-end mindset and methodology so that we reduce the need for support at the same time as improving the support that you get if you do end up needing something. And so it, it, it's been kind of a an experiment and a new thing for a very old, you know, a 35-year-old software company to look at service experiences and how we can shift our perspective from just offering software and products and even if those are through the cloud and look at it as like, how do we offer service and how do we be in service of some sort of customer goal? How do we be in service of their needs if they're having they're having problems? And not just deliver more software, but really provide, you know, a human a human connection and relationship between all the things we offer together and that's what to me that's where like service design in this digital product space that i'm in has the biggest benefit is transitioning companies away from old style of product-based business to the new style of service-based business can you explain a little bit more how you do that or do you have like a service design department uh, at inwit or are you spread it out all over the organization how does it work yes we have a we have a service design organization it's one person it's me And how it works and what I do is basically join other people's projects and other people's efforts to kind of assist and diagnose and take a deeper look at to what they're working on presently. Because, you know, most of the problems, most of the things that our customers have trouble with and most of the pains our company has, it's already known. And it's, there's already people who are tasked with it and, and have been working on it and are you know, experts in it. They just needed that, you know, service design methodology, kind of that horizontal mindset to branch out from just focusing on things in one specific area or touch point. And so I'm there to kind of act as a bridge between different teams and different business units and kind of tie it all together and do the service blueprinting and do the mapping and do the analysis of these larger experiences that are owned by multiple teams. Um, I'm there to help those teams synchronize over the course of the project, come on as kind of a temporary asset and choreograph how they're working and how we want to then you know, remedy the experiences that people are having and look for the root cause wherever it is, address it there, and then all the teams now have better inputs and ways to build better solutions that serve the entire end-to-end -end experience. So I'm, I'm kind of a roving consultant and project asset, if you will. I, I can imagine when you started that the company wasn't quite used to somebody in a position or a role like that. Did you find the, yeah, the company needed to get used to that? Were there any battles you needed to, uh, to fight to make sure that you could do the job the way you felt you can do it? I, yeah, I think the company you know, definitely wasn't used to it, and I wasn't I wasn't used to it as well. In a company of this size and kind of the history it has, and you know the success it's had over decades, you know what they're doing works. And you no, know, I'm not there to completely change the entire system, but kind of having to teach people what I'm trying to do and show the value and show you know where it can work and where it doesn't really work, you know, has been a, an educating experience for me and for the company. And kind of see like where does service design fit? What does service design mean? Is it a, is it a set of tools and methods, or is it a is it a role? Is it a job title? Is it just a theory that you apply to existing roles and and kind of just shift your paradigm and perspective based on the service design um, ethos? And that's something that you know even still today is an ongoing conversation around you know what does it mean to try and do service design in a big 
software company that does offer a lot of products and services. But, you know, to be honest, just like most companies in Silicon Valley, when it gets right down to it, these are software engineering and technology companies. You know, they build technology through code, through data. And so it's like, wow, how do you apply service delivery mindset to what, you know, realistically is a bunch of computer science, software engineering companies. And so that's where I'm always having to retranslate and redefine what I do and try to make it work within the existing systems. Mm -hmm. We find that uh, inevitably with service design projects, uh, we tend to need to do some kind of change management as well, because often yeah, the, the solutions we come up with mean yeah, that si certain silos need to be broken down. Do you actively work on, on change in, in your organization? Yeah, breaking down the silos is something that I think I learned. That's uh, dude, I don't know if silos need broken down anymore so much as they just need bridges built between them so that communication and the kind of the flow of information and knowledge can happen more seamlessly and people can still focus in the silos and still deliver what they're experts at and what they are really deeply focused on in the silo and expecting people to work in those units and then also bridge the gaps between the other units and the other silos is too it's too high of an expectation and so that's why i think service design in companies just in any company this people with the service design tool set and kind of that mandate can build the bridges and kind of um, smooth out the internal seams and get the information flowing and kind of have a, a higher level view like a little bit higher altitude and watch what's going on in multiple silos at once and then coordinate between them um, and that's where this idea that, that Megan and I have about the, the horizontal layer of a design presence that isn't focused on delivering any one thing in a silo. It's focused on having the silos work together and delivering all of that combined together. Because in the end, that's what the customers experience is they walk across something you know, as a, as a customer or as a user or, or whatever that's made up of what all those silos produce. But to them, it's just one singular journey they traverse. And it's like, who's watching out for that traversal of that journey? And that's why our logo for practical service design is a hot air balloon, because we picture ourselves in the hot air balloon, kind of trying to look down on the scene and say, okay, what's everything that's going on that we can see from up here that we wouldn't be able to see on the ground? Well, that's a very nice way of thinking about it. I will use your not breaking down the silos, but building bridges metaphor, definitely. So Megan, you practice service design at Stanford University. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So I work in the central IT organization at Stanford. It's about a 500-person organization in you know, the center of Stanford, and we provide about 350 technology services to campus, supporting about 30,000 uh, staff, faculty, students, visitors on a regular basis. And there are, just for a little bit of other scale, um, th there's about 1,800 IT staff at Stanford, and our org is about 500 of those. So there's quite a lot of distributed IT organizations that we partner with as well. So it's, it's a very complex landscape, and we offer services, everything from the internet to hospital paging to um, the help and ticketing system. So it's a very diverse set of uh, services. And about a year and a half ago, I started on this journey to transition my role. I was working as the designer for the web team that offers um, website services to campus. And I wanted to transition more to the service design space and make a greater impact across my organization. 
took me about six months to make the case for needing this type of role. And, and then I, I got it. So I, I was pretty, I mean, there was some timing involved there and some good luck and things like that. But the organization really took a chance on creating this service design role. And so over the past year, I've been working to really formalize that. And what does that look like? And I recently just got promoted and given some headcount to expand my team. So obviously things are going well. So the work looks like, well, the way we're positioned is um, we're central in, in the organization. So we sit alongside the people that do finance, ordering and billing, business process, not your normal neighbors from a designer's perspective, <laughs> but perfect neighbors from a service design perspective. And I pushed hard to make sure that this role and this function really sat in the right place in the organization. Because as Eric said, we have to be able to work horizontally across all of the experiences that are happening. And by being in that position in the center of the business, that gives me the access and the authority and, you know, the the right connections in order to work horizontally and tackle a diverse array of projects. So we really act as like an internal agency in some ways where we we have a team, a small team, and we basically either pitch project proposals to service teams or service teams will come to us. Three of our big biggest projects right now are aligned with the top initiatives for the business. So we are kind of being placed strategically into large projects that impact decisions about what kinds of services we're offering or core services that affect everyone across campus. And what we're bringing is really that human-centered design approach to to an organization which, you know, a year ago I was the only person who really as a designer and now we're building a design team. So um, very low design maturity in my organization and just this idea of even going out and talking to end users and understanding their experience is brand new. But everyone in IT is really excited about this. And I've had so much support in building this function of service design in the organization. Why do you think that is that the people from IT, that they really embrace that uh, the service design team will be helping them on services? I mean, it's a mixed bag, right? We have 500 people in the org, so not everyone's on board, obviously. But for the folks who have been, you know, who are really here to serve our clients and many of the people who work in our organization choose to work here because we believe in Stanford's mission and we believe in supporting the um, teaching and learning that's happening across the university. So I think people are really purpose-driven in our organization. Maybe it's not the same in all IT organizations, but having that purpose and commitment to the Stanford mission, I think, inspires people to really want to serve better and to do things the right way and do the best that we can for our community. So I think that that's definitely going for me. <laughs> I think the other thing is in, in IT, we're really starved for data. We're starved. I know it sounds funny. It, like like it, that shouldn't be the case, but it really is. We're, we're starved for particularly qualitative data around, you know, what our users feel and think about our services. And there really isn't a best practice in the industry in IT of collecting that information and integrating it into the, you know, the service improvement lifecycle. And so when I come in saying, hey, we have a framework for that, we have a, a process for this, and here's how it can work 
integrated into your process and people are really thrilled about that. So a lot of the success I think comes from finding ways to show how human-centered design methods can integrate into an existing organization's culture and into the processes that are already happening because you can't turn the cruise ship <laughs> like the cruise ship is is heading out to sea and you know I'm a tiny tugboat and I'm trying to like influence this large organization so yeah when you talked about um, you know service design is often uh, found doing change management or organizational change absolutely I think for me I'm in the process of helping my organization become a human-centered organization and we're just at the very beginning of that process. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we work from, uh, we're like an external consultancy um, agency, so we're always there from the outside. Mm. But I think I see a lot of value as well as being inside the organization and already knowing um, how, how they work mm. and then little by little um, implementing service design by respecting the methods that they're already using. I think for us as an external uh, consultancy uh, agency, that's a big challenge mm. to, uh, to accomplish this. So I can really imagine that for you, it's, um, it's, I don't know if it's easier to, to change mm. things if you, you've been already, <laughs> if you've been there for a long time, but I can really see the advantages uh, there. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in having design be in-house. Uh, I also do believe that there's huge value in agencies and third parties coming in. But I, mm -hmm. I see as far as making lasting change and not just minor change, but significant change. Like I'm, I'm really seeking to transform the way my organization approaches their business. And that, that's big change that's going to take many years. And the only way to do that is, is to run the marathon. It, it's, you can't do it in a sprint. You know, you have to be here day to day. You have to get to know people. You have to build relationships. You have to navigate the politics. You have to strategically line up projects so that you're influencing, you know, what comes next. So I do, I do think that if, if organizations want to make that lasting change and transformation that they need to bring design in-house, and I do think mm -hmm. we also need that budget for the agency and for the third party to come in because when I'm in-house, I can't do the kind of radical shakeup that an agency could do coming in where, you know, you bring in that expertise and you have that third party, third party expertise that can really shake up your organization, maybe wake them up a little bit, you know, show them something new. That can be a spark that I think an in-house team can leverage. So I'm hoping mm -hmm. at some point in my career to be able to have the resources to bring in and partner with some some consultancies as well. No, I think indeed both uh, mm -hmm. uh, sides have their advantages. Being from the outside, we are also uh, a neutral party exactly. in some way. Mm -hmm. We can bring people together, but we also definitely believe in in bringing the knowledge inside. If we want to, yeah, try to bring long term change, I think it's more useful training people inside uh, to become uh, designers themselves than being reliant on, on someone on the outside. It's not necessarily helping our business, of course, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, that's if we want to help people, I think that's uh, definitely the way to go. Also, a difference I think uh, that I noticed you were talking about, yeah, as a service designer, bringing in qualitative uh, insights. 
I can imagine both uh, you and Eric that the quantitative insights or the data is, is already there. Now you, you generate qualitative insights. How practically uh, do you go about merging the two? Um, okay, let me be really honest here. So you'd assume that a 500% IT org with 350 services would have a lot of data. The truth, the truth is we actually don't. The only data we have a lot of is usage data on some core systems. Like we know that you know, 10,000 people used BlueJeans last month. There has not been a very strategic or thoughtful mindset into how we collect either quantitative or qualitative data. And even our help ticketing system, we get 12,000 tickets a month is so badly categorized that we can't run useful reports off of it. So I'm, <laughs> I find myself not only pushing for the qualitative data and having my team conduct you know, user research and factoring that in, but, but also helping in the conversation of how do we structure better data systems so that we can be you know, constantly getting a feed of useful data and, and putting the thought into it. Because that's, that's something that as a, as a designer, we, we think about you know, how do we get the data we need to answer the questions we have? And I think a lot of service teams don't think that way. They just think of, well, I don't know what data there is. Like, I guess there's usage data. And like, they don't go farther than that. So uh, I think teams need a lot of help also to think about the quantitative data piece. And now Eric's situation, I'll let him talk about that, is very different than mine. So, you know, looking at his organization against mine, which, you know, has much lower design maturity and much... Um, fewer data systems. Yeah, so data on my end, where we're a, a, you know, a digital company, um, it can be very easy to insert listening posts uh, on places where to gather data and have it funnel into a central place, which we call our voice of the customer organization which is just a, a label for saying um, a place where a bunch of different data sources get translated down into the customer's voice about what are they experiencing? What are they um, saying? Um, what are our telephone agents hearing of people call for support? And what are people doing inside the products as far as um, their workflows to see how they're using it, where they're getting hung up, what they're doing and not doing. And then it just kind of gets synthesized down into sim simplified buckets of this is what's going on um, in this area, we give it a name. Maybe we call it installation. Maybe we call it um, subscription. Maybe we call it transactions. Since you know we're a financial technology company, you know, working with people's banks and their 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 money coming in and out. I mean, that's a huge that's a huge deal. And so, if there's something going on with that, you know, we give it that name and put it in that bucket, and then we can address it and look at the data around those certain tasks and workflows in kind of a consolidated a consolidated way. And then when there's when someone wants to do a deeper dive and see raw data and raw numbers, a lot of that is already there and available. And let's say for me as a service design resource, you know, what are we going to actually do with that data? And just because you have data and have started to turn it into a story, that's not exactly a project or something that's addressable yet. And so we're able to take you know the voice of the customer, um, lowercase, and then voice of the customer, uppercase, the actual people who are called the voice of the customer leaders and say, how can we turn this story, how can we turn this data into something meaningful to us that then can go and be diagnosed and analyzed and turned into something tangible like the service blueprint. So the data becomes 
a thing because you can't you can't manipulate data after the fact. You have to go back and change the reality of the situation, change the experiences the customers are having, and then watch for new data to be output and compared to what you have. And that's kind of the that's kind of the magic, I guess, of what I like to do as a service designer is go back in time per se with the goal of saying at the end, we want to change the data that's going to come out of this and make it different from what it was. So, you know, it's cool to have all that available, but at the same time, data is meaningless unless you can form some sort of plan on how to change the data that you don't like and turn it into go, you know, into the direction that you do like. I think that brings us to uh, a topic that that's always a challenge for us is is measuring the the success of a service design uh, project. That's just Um, impossible. Give up. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, I often think the same. Do you honestly think it's it's impossible or do you think in some way? I don't think it's impossible. I think it's something that in the world of design and design thinking and most of service design designers that I've talked to and met is they're coming from a very, you know, a generative creative space. You know, I, I see some people who are interested who are very, you know, analytical and, and scientific about it. But most of the time, it's it's people like us, like me and Megan, where we're like, hey, you know, wow, this what a what a great way to look at how we deliver experience experiences for people and the humanity of it all. But what I've learned on delivering a couple projects where we saw um, what we could measure the outcome is that the, the outcome of the service design project, really, there, there isn't a service design project. There is the project, there is the problem you're trying to solve, there is the thing the company is working on, but it's not mine, and it's not a service design thing. And so one of the really easy to understand metrics and successes that I've had that you know anyone in any company in any industry can get is um, phone call volume, and people who are calling in and describing certain problems and we're collecting what they say and looking at, you know, um, analyzing their words and putting it into the computer and seeing, okay, we have all these people saying all the same thing. Um, let's consolidate that and kind of turn it into, you know, I'll, I'll just use the word, you know, installation, whatever. Um, so we know that's a problem area. And so then your service design project is just augmenting the method that you approach those installation metrics and then how do I know when a service design project is working or how do I measure it? Well, I measure it in the same ways they were measuring it before. How many people are coming in the top of the funnel? How many people are coming out the other side in the call centers and with the phone call volume? And when we watch that volume go down based on the targeted things we went and did upstream, it's kind of like, yeah, that's the metric we were already watching. We already were looking at that. And now the service design mindset and methodology came and added ingredients to the recipe all upstream and downstream of the customer's experience. And so then those listening posts that are set up along the way, we start to see where they're changed. But I'll be honest, I don't have experience with looking at something that would be considered a project that has no listening posts, that has no (laughs) downstream data collection and saying, where do we set up the listening posts? So for me, I mean, I guess it's kind of easy. And Megan has, um, you know, razzed me a little bit on how much easier that is where you already have a data. I mean, we have we have real data scientists already working. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, well, my output is I look and, you know, one of the things we did recently after our service blueprinting and our design projects, we saw 30 percent decrease immediately in call volume by remediating various root causes, big and small upstream. And so then when it's like, okay, phone calls are down, phone calls are painful for us, they're painful for the customer, they cost money for us, they cost money for them, phone calls shouldn't happen 
except for the most critical things. It's like, well, that's how I measure it. And, but mm -hmm. the trick is that they were already measuring that, and mm -hmm. that was already set up as the project. And I just came in and added new flavors to the recipe because we weren't making a lot of progress in reduction until we looked at it more end to end and stitched more things together. And so that's why mm -hmm. I'm the wrong person to ask on how you would go back and set it up when there's nothing there. And that's yeah. where yeah. Megan can talk now about what it's like to start kind of at the tabula rasa of data collection. Yeah, I think you're talking also a lot about um, that people are calling and that you get problems or complaints through phones. Mm -hmm. And it's also like a challenge we're facing if we're working with large organizations. We see that they all have this phone number where they collect a lot of data. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is that they don't really know uh, what to do with it. So right. they often they do have um, a report on what is uh, what is said during these phones, yeah. phone calls. But then you see the people in like the lower part of the organization, they will get all this information. They have all these data. They know these customers, but they don't uh, manage to uh, bring the data higher up in the organization. Well, that's, and, and that's my job yeah. as the service designer because that's, that's another thing. It's, that's, it's not their job to go fix things. No. They're not the, a lot of times they're not even the product designers or the developers yeah. or the, the interaction designers. They and cannot so, decide on, on those kinds exactly. of uh, changes. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why I build the bridges between the silos, like or the analogy earlier, and say, okay, I can help take this data. We can create a, a you know blueprint of it, which, which really is just like, let's figure out the reality of the situation. And then you redistribute better information to the same teams and the same people. Mm -hmm. And then they're able to take action. And one of the biggest you know, wins for me, you know, philosophically into it so far was when we had a certain problem, that bucket in the call center. And once we, once we just mapped it out, once we mapped it out, before we even started to create solutions, one of the people who was a part of that project said, gosh, you know what, I've been working on this data. I've been working in this area for six years and I've never seen how the end to end experience of our customers actually works. Mm -hmm. So of course they're not going to be able to have huge impact because they're so busy with their day job that they already have, you've got to have someone like the service design practitioner come in from the outside and ease the burden and let people focus on what they're best at, but then build those, mm -hmm. build those bridges. And that's kind of the, the crazy part where it's like, you've got all these eager people who know everything. They know this stuff intimately, but when are they supposed to fix it? And how are they supposed to fix it? They're, they're not, they're part of the downstream. They don't work mm -hmm. upstream. And so when I bring the data and the people upstream and downstream together in a room, it's like, ah, finally, we can all get together and solve this because typically we didn't build this together. We don't work on this together, but we're all a part of the big chain. Let's finally yeah. um, synchronize, change the choreography. And then when we go back to our day jobs, we're working from a shared knowledge and a shared solution. And that's, that's really the beauty. I'm also curious about your uh, tabula rasa, uh, Megan. <laughs> how how do you go about measuring the the results of the work you do? So I work because we don't have any um, any of these data systems or listening posts, and most of the services I work with don't even have measurements set up for them. What I try to do at the beginning of a project when I'm working with my stakeholders on the project is I let them define what success looks like. So it's a little more fuzzy and maybe a little more traditional to what you'd see in other design disciplines where we really just have an honest conversation of, you know, my team's going to engage with you on this part of the project. What are your goals and what does success look like? 
and um, and just really document that. And that can be very much, you know, if, if we're able to provide a functional requirements for a new service, for example, getting to that checkpoint, it looks like success, for example. Um, so the, these are small steps. And the teams that I'm working with a little closer we are having those conversations of, you know, how do you measure the success of your service? And we're talking about in the next year launching a service assessment program across all of the services that we offer. And I don't know if you know about the concept of a 360, but I really love this idea of a 360 assessment where you're, you're assessing something from all angles. And that includes, you know, financial health, efficiency, satisfaction or happiness of the staff working, the customer satisfaction. But how can we create like a 360 assessment tool for services that we can maybe conduct once a year or once a quarter as, as a checkpoint? And I think that's how we're thinking about going about this because we have so many services that are all interdependent and it's very complex. And I don't know how we're going to set up these these listening posts for all of these services aside from our help ticketing system, which we are revamping and building in some good data metrics um, into that. So for me, it's it's kind of a little more tactical based on the project, like let the stakeholders define success and then thinking about how do we create a lightweight way to assess service health and maturity on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any initial trials of well what will become your 360 tool? Do, have you got some small elements that you're already trying out? We're not really putting them into practice quite yet. It's um, we have it slated more for next spring as an activity, but we've been collecting bits and pieces. And for example, in the IT service management landscape, which is its own cultural beast, there are definitely practices for measurement and assessment. And different, even other schools, peer institutions to Stanford have been implementing some things like a service scorecard. So we've been collecting some examples of how people are doing this. And I want to factor in the human-centered design pieces because what's really missing when you look at the, the way that IT service management as a practice you know, looks at service health and maturity they look at financial health, they look at process efficiency, but they, you know, they're not looking at the client experience at all, which is, I don't understand why, but that's okay, we can change it. So I think you know, my, my role in this is gonna really be pushing for making sure that we're factoring in equal importance on both the business and the client experience and providing ways to actually measure that. So it might be some frameworks that we create around client experience surveys, or maybe we conduct a certain amount of you know, user interviews for each service every other year or something like that, where we can systematically do that. We're a long ways off, and our, my focus right now is really building the team, lining up a pipeline of projects, making sure we're lining up projects that we can leverage to create more project opportunities so projects that have a good story behind them and where we can really make an impact and open up people's eyes to the client experience. Mm-hmm. I have a question about a word that always comes back is practical. Mm-hmm. So you're the practical service yeah. design uh, community, also the guides. Mm-hmm. It's also about practical. Can you explain a little bit more what this <laughs> word means to yes. you guys? Yes, we, we can explain that. Yes. Can I take this, Eric? Oh, please take okay. it. <laughs> so... 
when we were first getting into service design, so about two years ago, I, at least for me, I was extremely frustrated with how theory heavy the resources are and how few and far between the resources are. We're talking about books. I could count on my hand how many useful books there are. <laughs> Videos, workshops, especially out here in the US, there really isn't a lot of activity that you can participate in when you're just getting started. And, and even understanding, making that leap from single touch point, because that's where most people who are in a design profession, they're really focused on a single touch point, and that's what they think is the universe of design. And even that expanding your brain to the point where, oh, I can have responsibility for this end-to-end thing. And what does that mean? It's so abstract. So when Eric and I connected, we really latched onto this word practical as like a grounding rod, as kind of a number one most important value that we share that we think that the community really needs. We need more practical resources where someone who's not familiar with any of this could come in, learn something, and then the next day apply it at work. And mm-hmm. so like, that's what we mean by practical is not removing the theory or removing the abstraction, but trying to make it relevant to the day-to-day work that people are doing, whether they're a designer mm-hmm. or whether they're a project mm-hmm. manager or an analyst or whatnot. But how do we make service design more practical? Because right now we kind of believe that it isn't. It's not practical enough for people to, for it to be yeah. a tipping point. For, for yeah, I fully agree that it's like really vague for some people, like you're talking about change and all these uh, very uh, big terms, but actually no one really knows what it means. And I also think that the practical service design guide is a great way of showing uh, what service design is in a, actually it's only a couple of pages mm-hmm. with some uh, drawings, but <laughs> it makes it really clear for people what they can do and what the first step could be towards uh, service design. I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Are there different tools like the guides that you're using to uh, make sure it all stays practical? I think it's more in like an ethos or like a MO like that Eric and I follow in everything we do that like we can't let ourselves get too abstract (laughs) when like when we're going off on a tangent, we're like, wait a minute, how does this get become practical? How do we make this useful for people. So we have been working on developing a kind of broader practical methodology framework that's bigger than just blueprinting, but integrates a lot of the other things that you that you need, the ingredients that you need to have a more robust, you know, service design practice. Mm-hmm. And we are really trying to think of how do we use this to help enable the next generation of service designers. 95% of the people who join in Slack are people who self-express as new to service design. That's crazy to me. There is so much interest, um, particularly in the UX field, in expanding beyond the touch point. And yet the service design field is giving nobody any sort of practical steps to latch onto as they make that transition. So I think we're really trying to fill that void and um, provide a, a, a forum and resources and you know, maybe eventually some online classes, I don't know, but something, yeah. something where we can really empower people who are new to really start trying this out. Yeah, it's yeah. The, the practicality of it. One of the um, analogies I've been working on over the last week is imagine that you, you have some sort of job where you move a bunch of big, heavy things, big rocks, you have to pull up trees, you have to redirect rivers, and you hear about this thing called physics. 
and you're like, wow, physics sounds awesome. So you go and get books written by Einstein and Newton, and it's like, okay, this is not helping me move these rocks at all. <laughs> and so the practicality of physics is like, okay, okay, let's take a step back. Look, there's a fulcrum, there's a lever, and there's pulleys. And these things can help you move these rocks. And then people yeah. see that and they go, oh, awesome. This is like so much easier than trying to do it without physics. And then they start to learn about little things like why does a pulley work? Why do fulcrums and levers work? Mm -hmm. But that's not important to moving rocks. And to us who are really into service design and really into theory, that's interesting and important. But I think a lot of people want to use these cool methods to enhance their work and enhance the, how they design for service and experience for their customers and, or their users, but they're not hobbyists. They're not enthusiasts like us. It's like, gosh, just give us like the practical application of this thing so I can go home and have a glass of wine and not think about this stuff and let you crackpots sit and think about <laughs> service design on your nights and weekends and help spread the word. And that, that's kind of the responsibility of passionate people to evangelize things they believe in. And I think that's why me and Megan feel this responsibility to the world to take what we believe <laughs> and help others believe it and apply it and benefit from it. I think uh, it's, it's clear you're putting a lot of uh, passion and energy, both of you, into this, uh, <laughs> this community. What, what would you like uh, the community to do? The people listening to this wanting to also help you make this uh, practical service design community larger, better, stronger. What would you like the I mean, community to do? It's it's just that the service design is so spread across the world. It's I mean I, I I mean there's a high concentration. If you look at the we have a Google map you maybe can include with the podcast materials, but we have a map where everyone puts a pin down of where they're at. And there's you know obviously a huge concentration in northwestern Europe, but for the rest of us, it's so spread out. I think service design is like a paradigm. It's going to stay kind of a distributed passion among people. And so getting in and taking part and contributing, whether you know a lot or feel like you know nothing, keeping the global conversation going is, is for me where I want to see that mm -hmm. community continue to become more and more of an, an influence because, you know, once you're cut off from like-minded people who share the same interest in this, it's, it's, hard, to, um, it's hard to grow and advance without external... Yeah influence and so it's just like gosh just get in just just talk about I mean people say they're afraid to talk because they don't know anything and it's like you're the perfect person you should be talking the most you know get in slack and write a novel of questions right. and <laughs> people will jump in and answer like that's the whole point because we're we're, we're creating an industry creating you know for to start a movement there's got to be movement and that's why we need people mm -hmm. to just jump in and talk yeah I, I think <laughs> asking questions encouraging people to ask questions is really important because that shows where the gaps are right now in the in the resources that are out there. So the more we can, you know, open that door and share our practice and and share what we're doing, the better. It is like pulling teeth trying to get people to share what do you do every day as a service designer? Like come on, tell me what you're doing today. And it's hard. Like I don't know why it seems like this is a hard thing for our community to jump in on, but that's, I think it's really important for the people new to the industry to start to see what this looks like day to day in their, in their work. So that's where, for me, the, the focus on community of practice is really important. And I'm hoping that Slack can become more of a space for that. But I, you know, I know it's hard in the chat environment. So we're also thinking about other venues and forums for that as well. That's great. Um, well, it's been really interesting talking to uh, you guys. Uh, I think we could 
go on for hours. <laughs> uh, fortunately, there is a platform exactly where we can do that yeah. <laughs> on the practical service design community. Um, before we, we say goodbye, uh, where can people find you guys online? If you go to practicalservicedesign.com, you can join the community there. You can download our ebook on blueprinting and all the resources and templates we're putting up. Um, the community is adding more and more content every day. So definitely check it out, practicalservicedesign.com. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Thanks very much for your time and uh, the interesting talk. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, this was really you. fun. Yeah, I loved it. Will we be seeing you at the service design conference in Amsterdam? Unfortunately not. We couldn't make it the travel work this year. We're hoping that okay. it'll be in the U.S. sometime in the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, but, I think yeah. it moves around the globe, so everybody uh, gets to be nearby sometimes. Yeah, but we'll be watching on Twitter, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's not too far away for us, fortunately, mm, that's this good. year. All right. Thanks a lot and uh, goodbye. Okay. Thank Thanks. you. Goodbye. Bye. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight, by Hydrogen C featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.